Hello, church. My name is Joseph, and now we'll be reading today's passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. For those that are new or visiting for the first time, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I would... I'm very honored to be able to share the Word of God with you guys this morning. And um, for those that were able to take the time and energy to prepare a trunk, um, thank you. And I, I'm sure husbands and wives, it might have been a stressful morning for you guys, and I saw it on some of your guys' faces. So prayer, prayers of blessings, and that God will be able to open your heart during this time and, and allow confession and repentance and maybe even reconciliation after, the, after a trunk or treat. Um, now... When you want to find corruption uh, in an organization, all you have to do is follow the money. Uh, those are some famous lines from different movies and TV shows that you might know. And the sad truth is that uh, the church is not immune to this type of corruption. And, and in some ways, uh, it, and in some cases, it's easier for corrupt people to use church and to feed their greed and, and their corruption. Uh, some of us are aware of certain televangelists that continually ask for donations with a promise that the more you give to God, the more you will be blessed by him. Uh, these televangelists portray themselves as men of God and urge people, uh, usually people who are living uh, at or below the poverty line, to give very specific amounts. Uh, and they often refer to these donations as seeds to imply that by sowing seeds, God will be able to uh, grow their investment and return it back to them two, three, four, fivefold. Um, and, and I'm sure if you've seen people or seen these televangelists, sometimes the question that I would ask is like, uh, uh, why would anyone fall for this type of like scam, right? Why, why would anyone give to these type of organizations? And, and the more I thought about it and I thought, you know, like how ridiculous that sounded, I had to kind of look at my own heart and realize, oh, uh, we're, we're not that much different either, right? Uh, not too long ago, probably the majority of us um, gave to crypto and NFTs thinking that it would return back to us four, five, tenfold, right? It's, it's the same heart. Right? It's just the person you're giving to or the thing that you're giving to is just different. Uh, so we may not follow pastors like Kenneth Copeland, who has recently boasted that his net worth is $750 million. Um, or, you know, if you guys don't know who Kenneth Copeland is, he, he's the, uh, the pastor who kind of infamously blew away COVID-19. I don't know if you guys saw that meme. He's like, COVID-19? He's like, go away. You know, like, you know um, Jesse Duplantis, who claims to have uh, the biggest house in Louisiana. Um, Creflo Dollar, I mean, what kind of, that's an awesome, if you're going to be a, like, prosperity preacher, Creflo Dollar, like, you can't beat that name, right? Uh, he insisted 
to his, to his followers that he needed to purchase a G650 private jet for ministry purposes, right? And, and he was raising money for that, right? But similar to how many, of, many people fall into the traps of, of following these false preachers and, and, and pastors, um, we all fell victim to Shiba Inu, right? And Cardano and NFTs and different cryptos. Because we, we all, it all comes from the same place. We all want to gain something that we don't have. We all want to grow in, in, in material possessions and, and, and monetary gain. So at the root of this is, is really the same issue. It's the ambition, the hope of coming upon a lot of money uh, in order to solve the problems of our lives, to allow comfort to be able to uh, be you know, instilled into our lives. So from today's passage, we read that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right? And this means that when we dive deep into finding the source of why we commit acts of evil, in most cases, it comes down to a love of money. It comes down to greed. When we look at wars or drug cartels, human trafficking, and other evils in this world, the source of it often is, is the love of money. Our greed perverts our hearts into placing our love and trust in a thing that will actually rob us of our joy, rob us of our, our, our contentment. And, um, you know, I think oftentimes... Churches, and I know myself, I, I, it's, it's kind of awkward to talk about money, and it's often, often kind of weird to, to preach about money, right? It, it can feel kind of uh, self-serving, but I, I believe that um, the church should talk a lot more about money, because a lot of times, uh, all of our lives is surrounded by a, a pursuit of money, or a pursuit of our career, or a desire for money, and money can be a very good tool from God that we can steward for his glory and for our good, but oftentimes it can also become an idol that leads us to ruin. So today we're going to look at our greed, uh, how our greed steers us away from a life of generosity, and that finding out our contentment in Jesus will actually stir our hearts towards generosity. So first, our first point is this, that comparison is the thief of joy. Right, there's a famous quote, it's attributed to President Theodore Roosevelt. I'm not sure, if, and it's not 100% proven that Theodore Roosevelt was the one who came up with this quote, but he says, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Right, I gave this sermon to the youth students um, a, a few weeks back, and I made the point that at their age, it's almost impossible not to compare yourself to others. Right? If you, remembering back to high school, most of my angst and most of my anger and stress and frustration stem from the fact that I compared myself to others or I felt that my parents or the people around me were comparing myself to others, right? The, you know, the idea of like, I want to be cooler, I want to be smarter, I want to be taller. I, I, you know, and my parents thinking, hey, like, why aren't you like this random Korean kid in the Korean newspaper who got a 1600 on his SAT and has like a 4.5 GPA? That probably doesn't even sound that high anymore, huh? Kids are, are way more uh, smarter these days. But, you know, it's, it's where that, compare, or that angst came from. And uh, I wish... I wish I was able to tell the youth students that the older we get and the more mature we get, that the, uh, the idea of comparison would eventually stop, but we all know that that is not true. Right? In some ways, our, our desire to compare ourselves to others, it intensifies as we get older because it feels like there's more at stake. And what comparison does is it makes us believe a lie that if we can only have something that other people have, that our lives will be much better, that our lives will improve. Now, I recently read an article uh, or an, uh, an interview with um, Jensen Huang, who is the CEO and founder of NVIDIA. And the interviewer was asking him the question, and I think the, the, the purpose of this question was to kind of uh, give inspiration to young tech entrepreneurs. And uh, he said, you know, Jensen, if, if you were 30 years old today, um, 
what advice would you give to yourself? And his response was kind of surprising to the interview. He said, I will tell myself, don't do it. Right? Don't do it. And then the, the interviewer was kind of, you know, asking a little bit more. He's like, yeah, the, the, the amount of problems, the stress, and the hardship that has arisen because of the success of my company is not worth the money that I've made. And this is a man who is, his net worth is $35 billion. Uh, his company is valued at over a trillion dollars. Um, when I think about, uh, like, if I can have $35 billion, like, my life would be awesome, right? But he's like, it, it's not worth it. Don't do it. And, and there are plenty instances in, in, in my life and probably in your life as well where it, it, this is proven to be true, right? When was the last time that you received the very thing that you were placing all your hopes in? And when was the last time that you were able to achieve the goal that you were striving after and you thought, once I can achieve this goal, my life will be that much better. And, and, and you realize that once you actually receive the thing that you're looking for, like, hey, my life actually is either the same or it's gotten worse. Now, um, I, I, I do enjoy golf. I'm not as an avid golfer as I used to be, uh, but there was a time when you know, my main hobby was golf. And, uh, and although I am probably like a top three golfer here at this church, um, I, I never took pride in being the top three golfer at this church, right? It's like, it's like Messi being the best player in ML, you know, the MLS, like who cares, right? Um, not much of a challenge, but uh, back, back home in Southern California, uh, amongst my friends, I am the bottom 10% of golfers. They are uh, way better than me. They hit the ball way longer than me. And so, like, when I go down at home and I play with my friends, like, I'm striving to, to like, impress them, right? And a, a few years back, I was playing with them, and, and, and I, I noticed that all of them had uh, this bright new uh, golf shaft, uh, and it's, a, it's called the Autoflex shaft. And I'm, I'm going to bore you guys with this a little bit, but uh, it, it's a, a Korean shaft, a uh, Korean company called Korean Hidden Technology, and all of them had it, and they were all hitting it super long and super straight, and I was like... I need that. I was like, this is going to make me a better golfer. This is going to solve all my problems in golf. And, and I bought it. And uh, I don't think my wife's here, so but I won't tell you how much it costs, okay? But I bought it. I bought it, and I thought, finally, my golf game is going to be amazing. And, and for like two rounds, it was. And then after that, it's just, it just the same thing as before, because the shaft isn't going to save my golf swing. Right? It's, it's, it's my golf swing that sucks. Um, and, and, but when I, I finally got it, I thought I was, everything was going to be good, but it wasn't. And it made me realize that my old shaft was actually good, better. And, and, but because of my desire to compare myself with, with other golfers and my friends, I thought I, I wasn't able to enjoy the thing that I already had. And that's what comparison does. It steals the joy from the very graces and the blessings that God has already provided in our lives. Because we're always, our eyes are always fixated on the thing that we don't have, thinking that once we receive that, that our lives will be better. So when we get trapped in the pitfall of comparison, it robs us from enjoying the very things that God has given as presents and gifts in our lives, good things that God has graciously given us. When we are constantly in a state of comparison and striving to gain what others have, then it keeps us from enjoying what God has given us. And we tell ourselves, once I have this, I will finally be free to enjoy my life. But that is not true at all. In verse 6 and 7 of this passage that we read, it says that 
Godliness, is content, uh, godliness with contentment is, is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Second, we realize that the lack of contentment fills us with fear and anxiety. Okay? Um, the passage we read says that, bo- but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Right? And I want to be very careful to make sure that, what, uh, that we do not vilify money and we, don't, we do not vilify being rich. Money isn't evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Right? We see passages in the Bible that tell us to actually be shrewd with our finances, passages that tell us to be good stewards with our finances, passages that talk about what it means to, uh, to invest uh, uh, money. And money is actually is a tool that can be used for good and for the glory of God. If being rich in itself was evil, then you know, Joseph of Arimathea would, would, would not have you know, been a follower of Jesus. King Solomon is the richest man who's ever existed in this world. So it's not being rich and it's not money in itself. The danger is the fine line between using money for God's glory and, and becoming people who fall into the idolatry of loving money. See, as Christians, we should absolutely be aware uh, of what it means to be good stewards of our money. Uh, we should be uh, very aware of how to invest properly, how to save properly, how to spend with wisdom. So what I'm speaking about is not speaking against investment strategies or savings or stewardship and even hard work and, and working hard in your careers, uh, because, but it's, it's really the idea that we believe oftentimes that money will solve all of our problems. And the evidence of, that, uh, of this um, that money can't solve our problems is very clear and exists all around us. Right? The number of lotto winners that have had their lives ruined after winning the lottery is, the percentage is wild. You know, and, and I'm sure all of us, or most of us, we daydream about winning the lotto, right? Uh, one example is Jeanette Lee. She won $18 million in 1993, which is about $38 million now. Like, think about it. If you had $38 million now, if I came to you and said, you can have $38 million right now, you know, and after taxes, 16 million. I, I don't know what ta- how taxes work, right? But even then, you'd be like, yeah, I'm set. I'm good, right? We all have that mentality. Uh, but this lady, she, you know, won $18 million in 1993 in less than eight years. She had filed for bankruptcy. She only had $700 left in the bank, and she was in debt for $2.5 million, right? And that's, that's one of the, the tamer cases of lotto winners. Other lotto winners, they, they die, they kill each other. It, it's wild. Just look, look it up, right? And what the passage tells us is that our love for money and our desire to be rich will plunge us into ruin and destruction. And one of the ways that it plunges us into ruin and destruction is oftentimes because when we have an over-desire for the love of money, it creates within us fear and anxiety. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34 uh, it, it, Jesus kind of gives us this idea of what it means for us to be able to trust God in his provisions. And it says, do not be anxious, do not be, do not be afraid, and he says, God will be able to provide all things. So, sorry, I'm going to have to take a, we have this, right? My uh, document didn't update, so I have to look back. I'm going to read the passage for us. Usually I have it all written out, but then um, something jacked me. I don't know what it was. 
must be the Halloween spirits. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34 says this. It says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his li- a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And now Jesus is speaking to, to, his, to his followers, and he's saying, Do not be anxious. You know, uh, why, why do you worry about what clothing you will wear? And he gives the example of the flowers of the fields. He says, the flowers of the fields, they, are array- they have more beauty than all of Solomon's clothing in his, out- uh, uh, his wardrobe. And, and the, the, the argument is, and these flowers are here today and gone tomorrow. He's saying, they, they last longer than you. If God is going to take care of these flowers, will he not take care of you? And then he gives the example of the birds of the air. He says, these birds, they don't work, they don't toil, uh, they, but they always have food. And he says, these birds are worth more than you. Why do you worry about what you will eat and what you will drink? He says, do not be anxious. And oftentimes, we think about the things that are, are, fills our hearts with anxiety, and it's really this, this idea of thinking, what if, the worst case scenario of our lives Right? What, what if? And, and, and let me ask you this. Where does your what if question end? Because oftentimes the last what if question that, that, that you ask yourself is the thing that you idolize the most. What I mean by that is this. If you say, man, what, what if I, uh, I, I suck at this project at work? And then what if my, my manager gets really angry at me? And then what if I have a, a, a review? And then what if I lose my job? What am I going to do then? If your question ends there, most likely the thing that you're idolizing most is your career. Now, if it keeps going, you go, now what if I can't get another job and I can't make money, uh, then how am I going to pay my mortgage? It, you know, then maybe that's what you idolize most, your, your, your money. And here's the thing, and we need to continue to keep asking these what if questions until we get to God in order to understand that he is the one that provides all things. Because what if you lose your job? Many of you, many of you have. What if, what if you can't find a job for many months? Some of you guys are still struggling through that. Then you keep asking the questions. Has I, have I ever been without food? Have I ever been without the necessities of life? Has God always taken care of me? Has God ever failed me? We continue to ask these questions so that we can really audit the, the, the idols of our hearts and come to the conclusion that we have nothing to be anxious for because the God who owns all things, the God who is in control of all things, if he takes care of even the flowers of the fields and the birds of the skies, that he will meet all of our needs. I think oftentimes uh, many of us 
when we struggle with anxiety and, and, and fear and stress, uh, many, many, many times it's, it's, it's associated with the connection to money and our finances. We wonder, especially here in the Bay Area, how are we going to afford to live? How are we going to afford to provide for our family? How are we going to be able to, uh, you, know, you know, set our roots down here in a, in a place that is super expensive? And then we start comparing ourselves to the people around us, to our coworkers, uh, to people, you know, in, in our lives. And we think, oh, how come they're at this level? How come we're only at this level? And then all the stress and anxiety of, of, of that desire to compare ourselves and that desire to seek comfort just weighs us down. And this is why God creates, uh, it, it, you know, he commands for us to think very wisely about money and, and the relationship that we have with money in order that we will be able to disassociate ourselves from leaning upon finances and money more than we do upon God. And that's our last point today. What does it mean for us to claim our joy through obedience? If, com if comparison with others robs us of our joys, if an over-desire for, for riches and finances and, and, and money uh, fills us with anxiety and, and stress and fear, uh, how do we combat that? How do we reclaim the joy that we receive from the, from the Lord? It comes through obedience. Our obedience to the commands of God transforms our hearts to be content with all that he has provided for us, all that he has graciously provided for us. First thing we have to think about is this, this idea of the life of renunciation. Now, uh, me and Pastor Eugene, we just came back from a preaching conference, so this is either going to be really good or really bad, okay? I'm either going to talk super long and make awesome sense, or it's going to make no sense at all. But one of the things that I do want to share, something that I did learn there, is this idea of the life of renunciation. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is really the beginning of a life of renunciation, Okay. Now, renunciation, for those that may not know, uh, is, is an act of relinquishing, abandoning, or sacrificing something that, is right, uh, that, that someone has as a right, a title, or, or as an ambition. Right? It is the act of choosing to let go of something that you have a right to. Renouncing something does not necessarily mean that uh, we are renouncing something as evil and bad. That's denouncing. Right? And, and Denouncing involves like disapproval or rejection of something or someone because it is, is considered immoral or, or evil. And I think when we think about our religion and we think about our relationship with Jesus and our, and our faith, oftentimes, and the majority of the times, we have turned our faith into a faith of denouncing. We, we vilify certain things and we denounce it as evil, and, and, but really our discipleship, the majority of our discipleship should be a life of renunciation. So what do I mean by that? Oftentimes, we have incorrectly been taught that money is evil. So if you grew up in the church, we, we were taught, hey, money is evil. But if you read it really carefully, it's not money isn't, isn't evil. It's the, the love of money that is evil, right? So throughout uh, many of our, our, our faith in our, in our lives, we're denouncing this is bad. This is unchristian. This is Christian. This is, this is worldly. This is, this is not a worldly. But really, if you think about a lot of the things that exist in this world, a, a lot of it is, is kind of neutral, right? And, and, and the thing itself is not evil. It, it's, it's our hearts that, that's tied to it that turns it into sin and, and evil. So our, our, our faith is really not, a, not so much a life of denouncing things 
And I think oftentimes that's what uh, makes people, non-Christians, think of Christians as hypocrites. We're always denouncing something as wrong and evil. But it's really this idea of, are we able to, to renounce things that are perfectly good for the sake of gaining something even greater? Are we willing to renounce something that maybe others enjoy because we believe that in our lives, by renouncing that, we'll actually enjoy something greater. And, and this is something that, there isn't a formula. I, I think it's all about kind of how God individually calls you. For, for, for some of us, um, maybe we are called to renounce riches and career success and, and comfort. Doesn't mean that riches and career success and comfort is a bad thing, it's not evil. But perhaps you're called to renounce those things to live a life that is more fulfilling and glorifying to God. Many of us, we have grown up now in this day and age. We live in a culture where we believe that we should and we can enjoy anything and everything that is around us. I mean, that's what social media and the internet has really done. Right? It's, it's really opened our eyes and, and made our eyes uh, really kind of hungry for the things that we see. So, I, I mean, you, you want something? Just go on Amazon or Timu. I've never used Timu, by the way, but I heard it's good. Cheap, right? It's literally right at the tip of your fingertips. You can receive and, and get shipped anything that you want, right? You, you, you want adventure? Just get on a flight. Right? Go, go explore. And, and like this idea of traveling and, and vacationing and, and going all these different places, it's, it's and you know, live, laugh, love, right? Eat, love, pray. I don't know which of one of those things. Are. Like, you can do that. It's at the tip of your fingertips, and we feel like that is our right. I mean, you have, you have a certain craving, even for your physical needs, craving for food, just DoorDash or Uber, you know, Uber Eats or Postmates. Everything is right at the tip of our fingertips at our disposal. And now we don't really renunciate anything. We just feed ourselves everything. But God calls us to live a life seeking the greater good. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, 36, and the crowd, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I think many of us in the church, and I, and I'm, and I include myself, um, we, we want to gain the whole world. We want everything. We want what others have. We want to enjoy the good things in this life. We, we want to be able to uh, explore the world. And what discipleship is saying, what discipleship to Jesus is saying is, you can let go of some of those things. And you can let go of some of those things and receive what is greater. You can receive me. So now, going back to something much more practical Right, as we think about what the life of contentment and, and fighting our greed, something, about, something more practical, we're going to talk specifically about the discipline that God calls us to make tithes and offerings. Now, here's the thing. If God is the one who owns all things, if God is the one who, who provides us with all things, 
Um, why, why does he make this a requirement? Why, why does he call Christians and followers of Jesus to, to, to give offerings back to him? You know, and I, and I say this all the time. God doesn't want to take our money, right? He doesn't want money to take us. He doesn't want to take our money. He doesn't want money to, to, to steal our lives. And, and that's why he calls us to give. Not because he's nickel and diming us. Not because he's a tax collector here to kind of make sure, hey, I got to get my cut. It's not because he's trying to test our loyalty. He's doing it for our good. He's trying to make sure that we are not uh, bounded by over-desire and love for riches and money, things that will actually bring ruin and destruction into our lives. He wants to tear us away from that. So he commands us to give offerings to disconnect us from the love of money. Because in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. If you are in full service to God, money will be nothing but a tool to use to serve God. If you serve money, then God will be nothing but a tool for you to make more money. And I think that is something very, very uh, um, real that we need to think about daily. So what does it mean for us to actually give? We give so that our faith grows. We give that our, so that our faith grows. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as his heart has decided, uh, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. His desire for us to give is so that our faith in him will grow. Knowing that no matter how much we give, that he will provide all of our needs. That we'll have sufficiency in all things. All of our necessities will be met. And as our faith grows, then we start, we'll be able to give out of sacrifice and not out of surplus. I think for many of us, we, we think, especially if you're starting out or even if you're not starting out, we think, hey, once I'm able to have a little bit left to give, I'll give then. Once my student loans are paid off, uh, you know, once my graduate school loans are paid off, then I'll start giving. Right? Or, hey, once we get to a certain place where we can uh, purchase a home and we're settled, then we'll start giving. You know, and and that, that logic can go on forever. You know why? And, and we, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you guys do this too. I, I, I do this way too much. I always go, man, I wish I could win $5 million. You know, I go, if I win $5 million, every, my life will be good. You know? And I go, oh, wait a second, but I got to pay taxes. So I need, I need $10 million. Okay. Once I win $10 million, I'll be all good. And then I think about all the things I'll buy and everything I'll do. And I'm like, wait a second, I actually need more than $10 million. And I calculated this. For the life that I want, uh, I need to win, you know, lump sum, tax-free, uh, $325 million. Okay. <laughs> then my life, then, my, then I'll have everything that I want. Right? Now, 
think about it. Even with your salaries, and you can compare your salaries to others, and you can always be like, oh, why don't I, if I, once I make this threshold, then I'll be able to give. It's, it's always once I have enough to give, then I'll give. You know what? That never happens. That never happens. My first job in seminary, I was an intern at a church. I was making $300 a month, okay, as an intern, okay? And I was like, I can't give $30. That's way, that's way too much money. I'll give once I make more. And once I make more, it's like, well, I, I, now that's a lot I'm giving. Like, I don't want to give that much. You know, you always battle with that. So when you're giving in faith, when you're giving, God is trying to grow your faith to show you that he will provide for everything that you need. And as your faith grows, you'll start giving out of sacrifice, not out of surplus. Lastly, he desires when you give, he grows joy in you. He grows joy in you. Now, Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he, he makes it very clear. He says, do not give out of impulse or casual decision, but out of thoughtful practice. Right? And, and just to kind of give you a little background of this, uh, in the New Testament, Paul never gives a formula of how much one should give. Uh, it never gives a formula of how, what the amount or the percentage you should give. Uh, we get 10% from the Old Testament, and the word tithe is not, uh, is, is literally means 10%. But the word tithe is not mentioned in the New Testament in a prescriptive way. It's always used in a descriptive way. So in Luke, uh, when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the word tithe appears, and, and the tax collector is like, I give my tithe, right? Um, it, it happened, it occurs twice in the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, the author is describing Old Testament priestly duties. And if you really look at the prescriptions of the Old Testament, you're not prescribed to only give 10%. You're prescribed to give 10% two times a year. And then every third year, you're, you're, you're asked to give another 10%, right? So technically, you're supposed to give, you know, 20, 22, or 23.3333%, okay? Now, where the word... Uh, you know, where 10% comes from, uh, 10% might be a good percentage for some, right? Uh, it, it, but it, here's the thing. It's, it's the, the principle that we're after here is that you give not reluctantly, that you give with a cheerful heart, that you give knowing that what has already been given to you is from God, that the person that can give you more is your father. Now, there's a certain joy that arises in your heart and also in the heart of God when you're able to give in this way. Now, being a, uh, being a father now, I, 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 I see and witness um, just how greed can be instilled in our hearts at a very early age. So, um, and you know, and also it, it comes from our, our us, right? Uh, I remember as a child, my dad um, took one of my french fries at McDonald's and then I took it out of his mouth. Uh, that's my french fry, you know? Not knowing that he could buy me more french fries, right? And he still brings it, I only share it because he brings up this story to this day, right? Um, and I was like, man, I was like, oh, I'm so, I was so selfish, so greedy, uh, but my kids have done that to me too, right? And uh, you know, I've asked my kids like, hey, can I get a, can I get a chip? And, and sometimes they get like the smallest, <laughs> tiniest piece of morsel, you know, like, you know, like the crumb at the bottom of the chip bag, you know, like, and there's like, here you go. And it was just like, boop, you know, and it's just like, and it's like floating because it's so small, you know, and you're just like, 
who are you? You, you know, like, what the heck, right? Like, and, and oftentimes, we give reluctantly in that way. Um, that brings no joy into your life, and it brings no joy in the heart of God. There have been other times when I asked, you know, my, my youngest son, even just this, this past Friday, we were out at the dinner, and I was like, hey, um, can, can I have a French fry, you know? And, and I feel like I always paint Jacob as like this perfect child. He's not. He's not. Okay? He's just the youngest. That's why I like him the most. <laughs> not the most. I like him equally. But, you know, um, but we're at a restaurant. I was like, hey, can I have a French fry? And he's like, no, you can have three, you know? And he's like, no, actually, you can have five. And then he was like, find the biggest French fry he gave it to me. And like, I, I just wanted one, but I was like, it, it made me so happy because he was so joyful in giving it to me. Right? And, and he had that heart to, to give out of the generosity of his heart. And that is what God is after. If we're saying God is not after our money, he's not. He's after us. He wants us to be filled with the joy of knowing that he is a father that will watch over us, that will take care of us. The joy of seeing his children completely trust in him to know that no matter what I give, that I'll never be without one. That no matter what I give, that he will be able to use that for his kingdom and for his glory. And the joy that it should bring us is knowing that as we give back to God what he has already given to us, that he will be able to use that to benefit and help those around us in a very tangible way. And that is the heart of generosity that we must continue to strive after, continue to seek, disassociating ourselves from the love of money and being content knowing that we have eternal things, like a father who will watch over us. Let us pray.